Hello, I'm Vera Gowland-Dibas, and I'm a professor of international law at the Graduate Institute of International Studies in Geneva. And my lecture, the topic of my lecture today, is the International Court of Justice as the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. I'd like to approach the International Court of Justice from the perspective of the specificity of the court's status within the framework of the United Nations by re-examining the way that the court conceives itself as the principal judicial organ of the United Nations and the way this affects its general role and responsibilities. As you know, unlike the Permanent Court of International Justice, the ICJ is part of the institutional structure of the United Nations and is established under Article 7 of the Charter as one of its six principal organs. Its functions are defined in Chapter 14, and Article 92 refers to the court as the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, and this is reiterated in Article 1 of the Statute of the Court. Now, there are many consequences uh, which flow from this incorporation. First, the fact that the statute forms an integral part of the Charter means that in interpreting its own functions, and even when acting under its contentious function, the Court must bear in mind also the Charter's general provisions, in particular its purposes and principles. Secondly, this has meant that the court is closely tied to the work of the United Nations and in particular occupies an important place in the Charter's scheme for maintenance of international peace and security. The statute of the court itself gives it jurisdiction in all matters specially provided for in the Charter of the United Nations. More specifically, the references to the ICJ and Chapter 6 of the Charter as admittedly only one of the ways by which states may settle their disputes, and in particular Article 36, Paragraph 3, which states that the Security Council should take into consideration that legal disputes should, as a general rule, be referred to the court, indicates that the court is to be solicited in the case of disputes, the continuance of which are likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security. It is therefore placed squarely within the overall security system. But thirdly, a distinction can also be made between the law regulating the functions of the court, which is laid down by the UN Charter, and the law that the court applies, which lies beyond the Charter and is drawn from international law. The ICJ, therefore, has a dual and as such an ambivalent role in also being an autonomous adjudicative body with its own statute. It both services the UN organs in providing advisory opinions and also states in settling their international disputes. And it has constantly to strike a balance between its organic connection with the United Nations and its independence as a judicial body and organ of international law. But the two are intricately related. And what I'd like to show you in this lecture is the way in which its role as principal judicial organ of the UN has also had an impact on its functions as a dispute settlement body. What does it mean to be in turn an organ of the UN, a judicial organ, and a principal judicial organ? But first, uh, I'd like to say a few words about the origins of that organic connection between the ICJ and the UN. Uh, this organic connection has its roots in the relationship between the Permanent Court of International Justice and the League of Nations. While the PCIJ was not an organ of the League, it nevertheless owed its existence to Article 14 of the Covenant, which provided that the Council of the League would submit to the Member States plans for the establishment of a Permanent Court of International Justice. The membership of the two bodies were also separate. But moreover, the PCIJ was closely linked to the League institutionally, administratively, financially and functionally. For example, the League elected its judges, bore its expenses, and while under Article 14 of the Covenant, the Court could service the League by giving an advisory opinion upon any dispute or question referred to it by the Council or by the Assembly, uh, the PCIJ was also seen as one of the means of putting into effect Articles 12 and 13 of the Covenant for the peaceful settlement of international disputes.
so that while the legal existence of the PCIJ was not ended by the outbreak of the war, it was considered to be sufficiently affected by the demise of the League of Nations for its continuance after the war to be open to debate. Discussions during the war on the future international judicial organ revolved around two main issues. Firstly, whether to establish a new international court altogether or to, contain the, or to continue the old court. And secondly, how the court would be linked with the new international organization. The informal inter-allied committee established in May 1943 under the chairmanship of Sir William Mulkin cautioned against maintaining an organic connection. Considering that the prestige of the PCIJ had been too dependent on the varying fortunes of the League. Despite this counselling, the organic connection between the court and the organisation was formally endorsed in the proposals for the establishment of a general international organisation of 7 October 1944, which emerged from the four-power discussions at Dumbarton Oaks. A committee of jurists composed of 44 states, which was convened in Washington from 9 to 20 April 1945, was entrusted with the preparations for a draft statute. And the San Francisco Conference, which met from 25 April to 26 June 1945, endorsed the Dumbarton Oaks proposals. So that Article 7.1 of the new international organization became a general establishment article for all six organs of the organization, thus placing the court on a basis of equality with the others. So what does it mean to be an organ of the United Nations? This organic connection was considerably strengthened by the fact that the statute forms an integral part of the Charter. And there are a number of provisions in the Charter and the statute which are in interlinked. First of all, the statute was adopted at the San Francisco Conference simultaneously with the Charter on 26 June 1945, and both came into force on 24 October of the same year. And the authentic texts of the statute are in the same five languages of the Charter, although the working languages of the court are English and French. The reason for annexing rather than integrating the statute into the Charter was a practical one. It avoided unbalancing the 111 articles of the Charter through the addition of the further 70 articles of the statute. And it also allowed for access to the court of states not members of the organization. Nevertheless, the statute was deliberately not labeled as an annex. This integration of the statute into the Charter has an important impact on the general role and responsibilities of the court. The two legal instruments must be read together as a single instrument forming an integral whole. I was quoting there, as Judge Schwebel said in his dissenting opinion in the Electronica Secular Judgment of 1989. This means that it cannot be overridden by the Charter under Article 103. It also affects interpretation of the statute. The court has stated that in order to interpret a provision appearing in the statute, it should consider it, and I quote, in its context and bearing in mind the general scheme of the Charter and the statute. It also means that the court, as an organ of the United Nations, is bound by those general provisions which apply to all the individual organs of the UN, that is, the Charter's purposes and principles, including the domestic jurisdiction clause. It has given some evidence of this, for example, in the Anglo-Iranian oil case or the interpretation of peace treaties advisory opinion. If so, it could be argued that, for example, the court should take justice into account in settling disputes. Article 1.1, of course, does mention uh, the settlement just or does link rather the, uh, the settlement of disputes with justice. But it also means that the statute is capable of the same evolutionary principles of interpretation as have been applied to the Charter's provisions. The statute also defines the relationship between the court and the United Nations for the other principal organs of the UN, the General Assembly, Security Council, Secretary General, have been conferred with certain, have been conferred rather certain functions under that instrument. There are, of course, also membership links. All members of the UN 
are ipso facto parties to the court's statute. Nevertheless, the court is also open to all other states. A non-member state may become a party to the statute on conditions to be determined in each case by the General Assembly on the recommendation of the Security Council. While the statute itself, under Article 35, enables states which are neither members of the UN nor parties to the statute to have access to the court on conditions to be laid down by the Security Council. And then there are also financial links. As an organ of the UN, the expenses of the court constitute part of the regular expenses of the organization. This means that the General Assembly, in exercising its competence under Article 17.1 of the Charter, also considers and approves the budget of the court, and in accordance with the court statute, also fixes such issues as salaries, allowances, compensation, and retirement pensions of the members of the court. What about the court's relations with the other organs? That relationship can be characterized as both one of interdependence and one of independence. As a principal organ, the ICJ is bound to cooperate with the other principal organs and to give effect to their decisions. As a judicial organ, it distinguishes itself from the other organs in its composition and functions, which direct it to maintain its judicial integrity and its distance from the other politically oriented bodies. Its position as principal judicial organ sets it apart from the subsidiary judicial organs while depriving it of exclusivity. At the same time, it plays a role as the principal judicial organ of the world community. I would like to explore each of these in turn. The ICJ as a principal organ is in a relationship of interdependence with the other principal organs and as I have said, is bound to cooperate with them. What does this mean? There is an, first of all, it means that there is no hierarchy between principal organs and they operate on a principle of equality. There is no hierarchy, not between the ICJ and the Security Council or between the ICJ and the General Assembly. And the relationship between them, as I've said, is based on that principle of equality. But equality between the principal organs does not preclude their interdependence nor scrutiny of their activities by other principal organs. The court, while not considering itself bound to do so, has submitted reports to the General Assembly as of 1968, although the Assembly has merely taken note of them without debate in order to underline the independence of the court. And the President of the International Court of Justice uh, has also uh, begun to address the court annually. Moreover, the court is dependent on the principal organs of the UN for many aspects of its functioning. For example, in addition to the ones I have mentioned regarding membership and financing, the Security Council and General Assembly under the statute both participate in election of members of the court on the basis of nominations by the national groups in the permanent court of arbitration, proceeding independently of each other, and play a role in amendments to the statute. Moreover, the Security Council has been assigned a role in enforcing the judgments of the ICJ under Article 94, Paragraph 2 of the Charter, though it has never exercised this. The Secretary General, finally, has a number of formal functions under the statute in relation to notification, transmission of documents, etc. Equality between organs means that the court neither has preeminence over the other principal organs in matters of dispute settlement, see for example chapter 6 of the Charter, nor does it have the exclusive competence to make authoritative interpretations of the Charter or to resolve all disputes relating to such interpretation between the other principal organs. Belgian proposals in this vein, which would have referred such disputes to the court quote, as an established procedure, or allowed a state to seek an advisory opinion from the court if it believed that a Security Council recommendation regarding the peaceful settlement of a dispute infringed on its essential rights were rejected. It was instead recognized that each organ would be responsible in the first place for interpreting those parts of the Charter applicable to their functions. The General Assembly, or Security Council of course, could always request an advisory opinion of the court regarding such interpretation. 
or for that matter, regarding any legal question, and so could the other organs and specialized agencies so authorized by the General Assembly, so long as this concerned legal questions arising within the scope of their activities. But the court was not even considered to be the exclusive judicial body for that function, since it was always possible to establish an ad hoc committee of jurists instead. Moreover, any such interpretation would be without binding force. Thus, Gross writes that, and I quote, it does seem somewhat objectionable to suggest that committees and the court can be used interchangeably with equal effect. What is worse, however, is that the interpretation by a political organ was given as much cogency as that by the principal judicial organ. The, a second point to underline is the interdependence of the ICJ and the other principal organs. The court has forged its own conception of what it means to be a principal organ of the UN system. Its relationship with the other principal organs has been stated to be based on the principle of coordination and functional cooperation in the attainment of the common goals of the organization, not one of competition or mutual exclusion, as Judge Nee stated in the Lockerbie case. As a principal organ, its advisory opinions represent its participation in the activities of the organization and should be directed towards giving maximum effect to the resolutions of the UN political organs, as the court itself has stated on numerous occasions. While acknowledging the permissive character of Article 65 of its statute, which states that the court may give an advisory opinion on any legal question, the court has nevertheless reiterated in numerous cases that, and I quote, once it has established its competence to give an opinion, only compelling reasons could lead it to refuse such a request as had indeed done the Permanent Court of International Justice in the Eastern Karelia case, admittedly as a result of the very particular circumstances of this case. Only once did the ICJ actually refuse to give an opinion in the legality of the use by a state of nuclear weapons in armed conflict, which was requested by the World Health Organization. But this refusal was justified on the basis of the absence of the organization's competence to address the question, and hence the court's lack of jurisdiction, not on grounds of judicial propriety. The court has also greatly contributed to the development of the institutional law of the United Nations. Its function has been seen as one of assisting the UN organs, and its opinions are generally directed towards achieving results which would give effect to the decisions of the other principal organs, not render them nuggetary. The court has also contributed greatly, as I've said, to the development of the institutional law of the UN and to the strengthening of the competence and powers of the principal organs. In the expenses case, the court referred to the UN Charter, and I quote, as a multilateral treaty, albeit a treaty having certain special characteristics. Therefore, preferring to approach the UN Charter as a dynamic and evolutionary instrument. It affirmed the UN's international personality in the landmark 1949 reparations case relating to the capacity of the UN to bring a claim for reparations following on the assassination of one of its agents. The court has promoted the expansion of the powers of the organization vis-a-vis -vis restrictive assertions of sovereignty by member states. By endorsing in the process, in a number of landmark opinions and judgments, a teleological and dynamic view of charter interpretation. It has thus espoused the doctrine of implied powers and endorsed the practice of the organization, relying on the purposes of the UN to justify the use of such powers by the organs of the United Nations. And I can cite, for example, the expenses case or the effects of awards case. The court stated in the reparations case, and I quote, under international law, the organization must be deemed to have those powers which, though not expressly provided in the Charter, are conferred upon it by necessary implication as being essential to the performance of its duties. 
again in the 1962 expenses case relating to peacekeeping in the Middle East and the Congo, the court stated, and I quote, when the organization takes action, which warrants the assertion that it was appropriate for the fulfillment of one of the stated purposes of the United Nations, the presumption is that such action is not ultra-virus the organization. And in the 1950 admissions case, Judge Azevedo upheld the teleological character of charter interpretation, which in his view was that most likely to serve the natural evolution of the needs of mankind, even if the terms remain unchanged. While in the expenses case, Sir Percy Spender added, and I quote, whereas in the case of the Charter, the purposes are directed to saving succeeding generations in an indefinite future from the scourge of war, to advancing the welfare and dignity of man, and establishing and maintaining peace under international justice for all time, the general rule, i.e. that expressions should be given the meaning which they bore at the conclusion of the treaty, does not mean that the words in the Charter can only comprehend such situations and contingencies and manifestations of subject matter as were within the minds of the framers of the Charter. Thus, the court, in the reparations case, affirmed that the UN was a subject of international law and stated, and I quote, that its rights and duties must depend upon its purposes and functions as specified or implied in its constituent documents and developed in practice. On these grounds, it elaborated the theory of the functional protection of its agents. And subsequently, in the 1989 Mazilu and 1999 Kumaraswamy cases, it bolstered the immunity of UN special rapporteurs or experts on mission, and really in the face of contrary assertions by their home state. It promoted the normative activity of UN organs, in particular by upholding the fundamental role of General Assembly resolutions in the customary law process, which even if not formally binding, may be said in particular cases to have normative value by providing evidence of the existence of a rule or the emergence of an opinio juris. So long, however, as the court underlined in its nuclear weapons opinion, as they were backed by a substantial majority. The ICJ, for example, had occasion to cite the role of General Assembly Resolutions 1514 and 2625 in the evolution of the prohibition of the use of force and the principle of self-determination. It did that in the Namibia, Western Sahara, Nicaragua, and Eastern Timor cases. The ICJ has thus done much to contribute to the role of the UN organs in the field of decolonization also. It upheld the primary responsibility of the General Assembly in this process and the definitive legal effects of its resolutions in taking over, for example, the supervisory functions of the League in respect of the mandate system, in determining the future status of non-self-governing territories and their realization of self-determination. See, for example, I could cite the Northern Cameroons, Western Sahara, Namibia, Nauru, and East Timor cases. In its Namibia opinion, relating to the legal consequences of the termination of South Africa's mandate over Southwest Africa, it held that, apart from the role that they play in customary law, such resolutions of the Assembly may have, and I quote, operative design or dispositive force in certain circumstances. The court has also shown how, as a principal organ of the UN, it can participate in its activities, promote its purposes, and give effect to its decisions. In the process of examining its jurisdiction, in the wall opinion relating to the legal consequences of the construction of a wall in the occupied Palestinian territory, the court has confirmed important aspects of United Nations law, thus giving maximum effect to General Assembly and Security Council resolutions, reaffirming the international status of Palestine and underlying the continuing and special responsibility of the UN for the territory until, I quote, the question is resolved in all its aspects in a satisfactory manner in accordance with international legitimacy. 
in regard to the participation of the General Assembly in the drafting and adoption of treaties, the court in the reservations to the Genocide Convention case underlined the significance of this for the subsequent interpretation and application of the treaty. The UN, in fact, participated in the life of the treaty. In regard to the institutional structure of the UN, while in the second admissions case it opted for a textual reading of the Charter in seeking to maintain the balance between the Security Council and the General Assembly, it resorted to the doctrine of implied powers and a broad interpretation of the limitations of Article 11.2 on the Assembly in upholding the legality of the Uniting for Peace resolution and hence the secondary responsibility of the General Assembly in the maintenance of international peace and security. In the Wall case, the court pointed out in reviewing the practice that notwithstanding Article 12 of the Charter, which prohibits the Assembly from making any recommendation with regard to a dispute or situation over which the Security Council is exercising its function, I quote, there has been an increasing tendency over time for the General Assembly and the Security Council to deal in parallel with the same matter concerning the maintenance of international peace and security. It is often the case that while the Security Council has tended to focus on the aspects of such matters related to international peace and security, the General Assembly has taken a broader view, considering also their humanitarian, social and economic aspects. Far from upsetting the Charter's delicate balance between the General Assembly and the Security Council, the ICJ opinion has on the contrary served to write it. In contrast to the League Covenant, the Charter had bestowed on the Security Council a narrow and focused area of competence, while the General Assembly had been given sweeping competences ranging over the whole of the Charter. In recent years, however, we have seen that the Security Council, by widening the notion of threat to the peace and its linkages, has considerably encroached on fields which lie either expressly or by implication within the exclusive competence of the General Assembly. Decolonization, human rights including self-determination, humanitarian law, international criminal law, and so on. The Council has also begun to adopt what have been seen as legislative standard-setting resolutions, as for example those on children in armed conflicts, disarmament, weapons of mass destruction or terrorism. In the light of current discussions on United Nations reform and of the Security Council's assumption of vast and quasi-legislative powers while under the, the, the influence of certain permanent members of the Security Council, this bolstering of the role of the most representative of the UN political organs, the General Assembly, is of major significance. The General Assembly, after all, is representative of the world community and represents both the practice, or reflects rather both the practice and the opinio juris of the state's members of the international community. The ICJ has also sought to give effect to the decisions of the Security Council. In the Namibia case, it upheld the general powers of the Council under Article 24, Paragraph 2 of the Charter by stating that it could adopt binding decisions under Article 25 outside of Chapter 7. Such resolutions, said the court, entail legal consequences, including a duty of non-recognition. Similarly, in the Wall case, the court upheld the declaratory and hence mandatory legal effects of Security Council resolutions relating to the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory through the use of force and in matters of nullity and non-recognition. As stated by the court in the Namibia opinion, and I quote, it would be an untenable interpretation to maintain that once such a declaration of illegality had been made by the Security Council under Article 24 of the Charter on behalf of all member states, those members would be free to act in disregard of such illegality or even to recognize violations of law resulting from it. While it is true that advisory opinions have no technical force, states cannot ignore the existence of the fundamental rules that the court underlines, which bind them, uh, nor the automatic legal consequence of their violation. Moreover,
Providing the opinion is endorsed formally by the organ which requested it, it provides an authoritative platform for the organs of the United Nations, including the General Assembly, Security Council and Secretary General, as well as member states, to act upon them. But while in turn the General Assembly has encouraged resort to the court by promoting the greater use by UN organs of the ICJ, the Security Council, unlike its predecessor, the League Council, has been reluctant to make use of the court and to seek legal as opposed to political solutions. It acted under Article 36, Paragraph 3 only once in the Corfu Channel case and solicited an advisory opinion only once in the case of Namibia. Let's turn now to the ICJ as a judicial organ. What does it mean to be a judicial organ? It is, of course, the judicial character of the court that distinguishes it from the other principal organs, sets limitations on the court's cooperation with the political organs, and marks its independence from them. This contrasts, obviously, with the other principal political organs. In this respect, it has forged a certain number of concepts to guide it in its relations with the political organs. Firstly, the independence of the ICJ and its inherent judicial limitations have been stressed. As a judicial organ, the court obviously has to safeguard its autonomy from the political organs. The court therefore holds a special position, for it is not exclusively an organ of the United Nations. It is also bound by its statute, and it has inherent judicial powers, as well as limitations based on judicial propriety, which it could always invoke to refuse a request for an advisory opinion. So while as a principal organ it should therefore aim to cooperate with the other UN organs, as a judicial organ, the court is wholly independent of them, I'm quoting, and is in no way obliged or concerned to render a judgment or opinion which would be politically acceptable, as Judge Onyama stated in the Namibia opinion. Nevertheless, as Judge Coymans has pointed out in the Wall case, and I quote, the court, however, does not function in a void. It is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations and has to carry out its function and responsibility within the wider political context. It cannot be expected to present a legal opinion on the request of a political organ without taking full account of the context in which the request was made. The court, also as judicial organ, has forged the concept of functional parallelism. And this is how it has based its relationship with the other political organs, in particular the Security Council. The court, what does this mean? Let's, uh, let's ask the question, what is functional parallelism? The court has consistently rejected the traditional distinction between intrinsically legal or intrinsically political disputes, as opposed to distinct methods of settlement. In the view of the court, the legal-political dichotomy stem therefore not from the inherent nature of the dispute, but from a functional distinction between the two organs in the pursuit of the same charter goals. The differences between them arising from the nature of their responsibilities, their composition, powers and operating method. So as Judge Wiramantri in his dissenting opinion in the Lockerbie case observed with respect to the court, and I quote, the concepts it uses are juridical concepts. Its criteria are standards of legality. Its method is that of legal proof. Its tests of validity and the bases of its decisions are naturally not the same as they would be before a political or executive organ of the United Nations. It has disproved the view that the court could have no jurisdiction in a case brought before it merely because it had political implications or dealt with an ongoing armed conflict, or the inherent right of self-defense, simply because these issues were non-justiciable. Thus, it has adjudicated on such volatile cases as in the Corfu Channel case, Nicaragua, oil platforms, or Congo versus Uganda, which all had to do with varying uses of force. It reiterated this stand in its advisory opinion on the wall, underlining the fact that the, the fact that the question had political aspects was not enough to deprive it of its character as a legal question and hence of the court's competence.
And it illustrated in this way how it can participate as a judicial organ in elucidating the underlying legal issues of an ongoing question within the political organs, which involves such quintessential problems of international law as occupation, self-determination, respect for human rights and humanitarian law, or the use of force, as I have just mentioned. A refusal to render the opinion in the Wall case would have run the risk just as much of politicizing the court. One will recall the court's 1966 judgment in the Ethiopia-Liberia versus South Africa case. In a number of cases, the court and the Security Council have been contemporaneously seized by the same party. I can cite the Aegean Sea hostage case, the Tehran hostage case, Nicaragua. This has not proved an obstacle for the court. On the contrary, it has argued, and I quote, that the council has functions of a political nature assigned to it, whereas the court exercises purely judicial functions. Both organs can therefore perform their separate but complementary functions with respect to the same events. Finally, the court has underlined that there can be no hierarchy between the court and the council, and neither need defer to the other. The term primary or principal responsibility in Article 24 of the Charter did not mean exclusive responsibility, as the court has pointed out on several occasions. Whilst Article 12 of the Charter, in relation to the General Assembly, appears to incorporate a form of litispendence to coordinate the jurisdiction between the principal political organs, the concept of litispendence, as the court has pointed out, has no application to the relations between the International Court of Justice and the Security Council. In the Nicaragua case, it noted Nicaragua's contention that even after a determination under Article 39, Chapter 7 of the Charter, there is no necessary inconsistency between Security Council action and adjudication by the court. However, the case of Lockerbie, in which the court and the council were seized by different parties to the dispute, has revealed nevertheless the poten potentially conflictual roles between the two principal organs. For in recent years, the council acting under Chapter 7 has made determinations of law and invoked the responsibility of states with definitive legal effects, as well as extensive legal consequences. In the Lockerbie case, the adoption of the mandatory Security Council Resolution 748 in 1992, three days after the close of the oral hearings before the court, resulted in fact in the decision in one forum removing the raison d'etre of the other, at least at the stage of provisional measures. As Judge Bijawi has so rightly stated in his dissenting opinion in that case, the view regarding a clear division of functions between the court and the council is tenable, quote, so long as no aspect of these political solutions adopted by the council sets aside, rules out, or renders impossible the juridical solution expected of the court. But in Lockerbie, the court made clear it was not abdicating its judicial function. It was the particular circumstances of the case that led to the dismissal by the ICJ of Libya's application for provisional measures. Namely, it was the result or the effects of the application of Article 103 of the Charter on the Montreal Convention. I come now to the question of the ICJ and judicial review which has been a highly debated topic. If by the term judicial review is meant a constitutional and automatic process with compulsory effect, both the Charter and the Court Statutes are silent in this respect. And indeed, such a proposal was rejected at San Francisco. The Court itself has quite clearly stated in the expenses case in the legal systems of states, there is often some procedure for determining the validity of even a legislative or governmental act, but no analogous procedure is to be found in the structure of the United Nations. Proposals made during the drafting of the Charter to place the ultimate authority to interpret the Charter in the International Court of Justice were not accepted, and I close quotes. In the Namibia opinion, 
The court also acknowledged that it does not possess powers of judicial review or appeal in respect of the decisions taken by the United Nations organs concerned. And in only one case, that of the constitution of the Maritime Safety Committee of the Intergovernmental Maritime Consultative Organization, the IMO, was the question of the validity of an act of an international organization squarely put to the court, which the court found, in fact, to have been unconstitutionally adopted. That is a decision of the assembly of the IMO. However, that is not the end of the, of, of the story. In the process of addressing the questions put to it by UN organs, the court has never considered itself debarred from exercising some form of judicial control indirectly by reviewing the validity or conformity of Security Council and General Assembly resolutions with either the Charter or general international law. But it has done that as an incidental matter in the process of addressing the case at hand, whether advisory or contentious. And uh, this is illustrated by numerous cases in the expenses, Namibia, wall case, uh, and so on. In the Lockerbie Provisional Measures case, the court in fact reserved its future position by stating that the right of the parties to contest such issues at the merit stage had remained unaffected by the court's decision. Although, as you know, the case was discontinued after the preliminary objections phase. Nevertheless, the court has always acted on a presumption of legality of the acts of UN organs. In the Wall case, it cited its statement in the Namibia opinion that a resolution of a properly constituted organ of the United Nations, which is passed in accordance with that organ's rules of procedures and is declared by its president to have been so passed, must be presumed to have been validly adopted. And it is obvious that only fundamental irregularities would lead the court to question the validity of an act of an international organization. There are also certain important limitations on the role which can be played by the court in matters of interpretation and review of the validity of the UN resolutions. I've mentioned the lack of an established procedure for judicial review, which makes the process, as I have said, incidental or fortuitous. But there is also the need for a case-by-case -case jurisdictional basis for the court to pronounce. There is the non-authoritative nature of the court's pronouncements in this respect advisory on the one hand, or only binding the parties before it in a contentious case uh, in accordance with Article 59 of the statute. And the absence also of a coherent theory of the legal effects of the illegal acts of international organizations. Absolute nullity, relative nullity, all these questions have been left open. I'd like now to come to the question of the ICJ as principal judicial organ. We have looked at it as principal organ, as judicial organ, but what does it mean to be a principal judicial organ? The fact that as principal judicial organ, the court is not the exclusive one within the UN system, raises the issue of the court's relationship with the other subsidiary tribunals within the UN system, despite the differences in their nature. At the same time, and I will come to that later, the court plays a role as the principal but not exclusive judicial organ of the world community. So let's look at the first. The court is the only judicial organ established as a principal organ of the United Nations, but the UN Administrative Tribunal is a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly, and the two international criminal tribunals for former Yugoslavia and Rwanda were established by the Security Council, acting under Chapter 7 of the Charter. As subsidiary organs, these judicial organs have remained vulnerable to amendment of their statute, which is in the hands, of course, of the two political organs. This has been well illustrated by the General Assembly's suppression in 1995 of the United Nations Administrative Tribunal's procedure of recourse to the advisory jurisdiction of the ICJ embedded in Article 11 of its statute, of the Statute of the Administrative Tribunal.
But nevertheless, these subsidiary organs have succeeded to a certain extent in asserting their independence and in expanding the scope of their activities by inter alia reference to their inherent judicial powers. In contrast, while the ICJ has its own amendment procedures laid down in its statute, these, like the amendment provisions relating to the United Nations, render difficult formal institutional reform. At the same time, the court lacks the flexibility of the political organs in adapting to changing circumstances. As a result, the court's structure and process have remained, for a long time, more rigidly embedded in the international society that it was set up originally to service, although this is changing. The absence of any formal hierarchy between the ICJ and the subsidiary judicial organs has also raised another question, the issue of potentially conflicting decisions of fact or of law arising under the UN Charter or international law, where in the rare event of a case brought simultaneously before the ICJ and one or other of the established UN tribunals, there may be sufficient connecting factors for the outcome of the one to have an incidence in the other. This is well illustrated by the parallel cases brought before the ICTY on the one hand, the Tadic case, and that brought before the ICJ on the other, application of the Genocide Convention case both concerned with the issue of genocide, though with, within different frameworks, individual versus state responsibility. The ICTY, in determining the internal or international character of the conflict in former Yugoslavia, was led to reject the ICJ's effective control criteria for attribution of the acts of a military or paramilitary group to a state, which the court had developed in the Nicaragua case and which it had reaffirmed, or which it has subsequently reaffirmed, in the latest judgment in the application of the Genocide Convention case. The ICTY has done that in favor of what it calls an overall control test, as opposed to the effective control test. In the later case of Celebici, the appellants rejected the finding in Tadic, arguing that the ICTY was bound by the decisions of the ICJ because of the latter's position as the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, and also because it was, and I quote, undesirable to have two courts having conflicting decisions on the same issue. The appeals chamber of the ICTY, however, while agreeing that it was important for international law to be consistent and predictable, has stated that the tribunal was an autonomous international judicial body and that, and I quote, although the ICJ is the principal judicial organ within the United Nations system to which the tribunal belongs, there is no hierarchical relationship between the two courts. Although, the ICTY continued, the appeals chamber will necessarily take into consideration other decisions of international courts, but it may, after careful consideration, come to a different conclusion. Both the ICTY also, and the ICTR, and the ICJ, as we've seen above, have been faced with a similar question of whether they have the competence to review the decisions of the Security Council. The appeals chamber in the Tadic case, however, clearly asserted its jurisdiction to look into the legality of its own uh, creation, while the ICJ, as has been seen, has so far reserved its position. And now, finally, I come to the ICJ as a world court. The term principle organ of the United Nations, or principal judicial organ of the United Nations, has also to be viewed in the context of the international system as a whole. For the court's organic connection to the United Nations is related to and affects its role as an organ of international law. First, I have to point out that the court's contentious jurisdiction, as we all know, is not available to the United Nations and its, and its organs, despite the fact that the court is the principal judicial organ. And despite the fact that it has recognized the UN's international personality and hence its capacity to bring international claims. 
Neither the UN nor any other international organization is allowed access to the court. Now, this obliges the United Nations to seek other means of settlement of its disputes arising between it and its member states under specific instruments, such as arbitration clauses and its headquarters agreements, or again, recourse to the advisory procedure. Likewise, in view of the serious issues of accountability that have arisen recently from the activities of the United Nations and its organs, the lack of standing of the UN before the ICJ constitutes an important obstacle to the remedies which can be sought by states in their disputes with the international organization, including claims of ultra-virus acts, since they can only bring these, or they are in fact forced to bring these, in the form of an interstate dispute or an advisory opinion, which does not always lead to a satisfactory outcome. Thus, it has been argued that Libya's dispute in the case of Lockerbie was in reality with the Security Council, not the United Kingdom, nor the United States, nor could the court, for lack of a jurisdictional basis, encompass Bosnia's claim in the application of the Genocide Convention case that the Security Council was also an accomplice of genocide following on the imposition of an arms embargo over the whole of former Yugoslavia. Secondly, we have to see also the ICJ as a principle as opposed to an exclusive international tribunal because it was never conceived as and is no longer, as we know, the exclusive judicial tribunal on the world scene. The court, in fact, has never since its origin been envisaged as the sole forum for dispute settlement, as seen in the wide choice of means which are offered to states under Article 33 of the Charter, nor even as the sole judicial forum to which members of the United Nations can submit disputes. Moreover, the freedom of states to resort to other tribunals was in reserved by Article 95 of the Charter. The recent proliferation, quote-unquote, of tribunals and international judicial or quasi-judicial bodies, for example, the Dispute Settlement Body of the World Trade Organization or the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, has been at the forefront of the debate on the fragmentation of international law and the potential effects of conflicting judicial or quasi-judicial decisions on its unity and coherence. Shabtai Rosen has raised the question as to whether, and I quote him, with the political polarization of the world and the accompanying tendency towards the fragmentation of international law into some sort of regional units and specialized functional branches, a court organized primarily as a world court applying general international law is always the most suitable form of international judicial organization. The risks of forum shopping and of overlapping jurisdiction was underlined by a former president of the ICJ, Judge Guillaume, in his address to the General Assembly in 2001. He proposed that the various existing courts be encouraged to request advisory opinions from the ICJ, the only judicial body vested with universal and general jurisdiction, through the intermediary of the Security Council or General Courts. But other courts do not seem to have adopted this line of reasoning, nor does the ICJ itself appear to consider the conflicting decisions of either the ICTY in Tadic or that of the European Court of Human Rights in Loisidu to be problematic. In the early days, there was also much speculation as to whether the court would see portions of its traditional caseload removed. But the recent exponential increase in its caseload, including territorial and maritime delimitation and environmental cases, have not only assuaged these fears, but raised in fact the contrary problem of the court being overburdened in the years to come. In this new free market climate, the court's future strength will lie therefore in carving a niche for itself. In other words, in strengthening its specificity. And this specificity lies in the fact that it does not offer states merely another choice of means of settlement. 
but that as an international judicial body of general competence, open to all states, and as a court of the United Nations, it is conceived to be a world court serving the world community even in the absence of a hierarchy. Another question in this framework is the ICJ's participation in the activities of the United Nations, this time under its contentious jurisdiction. Although its contentious jurisdiction arises not from its character as principal organ of the UN, but that of judicial organ, the court, in exercising its function as a world court, also participates in the activities of the United Nations, for after all, dispute settlement is viewed in the Charter as one of the means of attaining the supreme goal of the organization. And as I have mentioned, the court is included under Chapter 6 of the Charter. This means that in its contentious jurisdiction, the court does not cease to be an organ of the United Nations. It therefore has the task of promoting the Charter's purposes and principles, and at the same time as it is serving, servicing states in the settlement of their disputes, it is at one and the same time servicing the United Nations and through it the international community as a whole. One is reminded here of Shabtai Rosen's very fine distinction and I quote, the function performed by the existence of the court, as distinct from the performance of that function by the court itself, is to be seen in the ultimate analysis as a political one. As an organ of the UN operating within the framework of maintenance of international peace and security, it has not, as has been seen, shied away from participation in the resolution of world tensions by playing a role in the settlement of disputes likely to endanger international peace and security, even when these had already given rise to ongoing armed conflicts. Nicaragua, for example, Congo versus Uganda, uh, and so on. The court is well aware of its uh, role in this respect. It has stated, and I quote, that it is mindful of the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter and of its own responsibilities in the maintenance of peace and security under the Charter and the Statute of the Court, close quotes. Judge Karoma has also declared, and I quote, the court as the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, whose primary raison d'etre remains the preservation of international peace and security, is under a positive obligation to contribute to the maintenance of international peace and security, especially in cases which not only threatens international peace and security, but also involves enormous human suffering and continuing loss of life, as well as the disintegration of normal society. Even where it has rejected jurisdiction, the court has exhorted the parties appearing before it to act in conformity with their obligations under the UN Charter, and its provisional measures have served to strengthen the general peacemaking activities of the UN and give an effect to the resolution of its organs. Undoubtedly, however, the court has, through its judgments, contributed to promoting, strengthening, and clarifying the normative basis of the United Nations purposes and principles. These are not static and have come to reflect the global values of the international community. The court has not remained on the periphery of these changes. It is evident that it is being enlisted in the process of shaping a constitutional law of the international community, as is evident from both the quantity and the quality of the court's current docket. The recent cases before the court are evidence that state are, and international organizations are bringing the kinds of cases which directly or indirectly involve fundamental community values or interests. Responsibility of states for international terrorism, Lockerbie. Self-determination and use of force, East Timor. Responsibility of colonial powers for international territories, Nauru. Genocide and self-defense application of the Genocide Convention, legality of nuclear weapons, Congo versus Uganda, and the Wall case, for example. In regard to the prohibition against military force, the court has included amongst obligations erga omnes the outlawing of acts of aggression. In the Nicaragua case, it opted for a narrow construction of the meaning of armed attack and hence of self-defense, reaffirming this in the Wall case by rejecting the concept of self-defense against non-state actors.
The court has also rejected a right of intervention in order to coerce a state in regard to its, and I quote, freedom of choice of the political, social, economic, and cultural system, or the use of force to ensure respect for human rights in another state, carefully distinguishing unlawful intervention from the provision of strictly humanitarian assistance in the Nicaragua case. The court has seen in the right to self-defense an evolutionary principle and has elaborated on the principle in its contemporary application as vehicled by General Assembly resolutions. It has upheld the erga omnes nature of the principle of self-defense and the basic rights of the human person, including protection from slavery and racial discrimination in Barcelona traction. The continuing application of human rights law was upheld in the nuclear weapons and wall opinion in which the court also upheld its indivisible nature, that is, as englobing also economic, social and cultural rights. And this is so important at a time when it is, in fact, more fundamental than ever to underline the unity of the international protection system for the individual. It should be pointed out that human rights and humanitarian law now form part of the peace maintenance function itself within the UN system, no longer relegated uh, to the secondary uh, purposes of the United Nations. But the court has also underlined the responsibility of the United Nations in cases concerning violations of erga omnes obligations and considered that it was up to the political organs of the UN to consider what further action was required to put an end to such illegal situations. It did that, for example, in the wall opinion. And this underlines the importance of collective responses to breaches of fundamental norms of international law which are of concern to the international community as a whole. But its position as principal judicial organ of the UN may also have resulted in raised expectations, which has led to criticism when the court appears to exercise, I quote, inappropriate self-restraint when supplied with the opportunity to play this role. Thus, Judge Zimmer has called for an even more proactive court in both the oil platforms case and in the recent Congo versus Uganda case. In his view, in this current crisis in the United Nations system of maintenance of peace and security, the court, and I quote Judge Zimmer, ought to take every opportunity to secure that the voice of the law of the charter rise above the current cacophony. After all, he continues, the International Court of Justice is not an isolated arbitral tribunal or some regional institution, but the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. In light of this development of its case law and of the court's own vision of its role and functions in contemporary society, as well as the fact that the international organization itself has now become truly universal and thus representative of the international community as a whole, it may be that the dual functions of the court, as principal organ and as an organ of international law on the one hand, as principal judicial organ and world court on the other, they should increasingly come together and reduce the tensions and ambiguities inherent in this dédoublement fonctionnel. Thank you.